Welcome to the Evolved Caveman Podcast. I am Dr. John, the guide for your heroic journey towards greater health, success, and most importantly, happiness. And now, on with the show. Hi, this is Dr. John, and I am thrilled to announce that Jory and I are opening up our retreat in beautiful Costa Rica from September 28th of 2024 to October 5th. Everyone wants fulfilling relationships. The hard part is love is not enough. So many factors can get in the way preventing ongoing connection, intimacy, and aligned growth. All healthy relationships start within. But when we have unresolved stuff, it can easily interfere with those we are seeking to be closest with. Whether you're in a long-term committed partnership or are single and are looking for love, this retreat will guide you in the heroic journey of healing yourself so that you can be open and available to cultivate the fulfilling relationships you desire and deserve. To find out more, visit joryrose.com slash retreats. That's J-O-R-E-E-R-O-S-E dot com slash retreats. Hey, avid listener. This is Dr. John back with the latest episode of the Evolved Caveman podcast. And I am really honored today to have as my guest, Steve Peterson. And Steve is a friend of mine that I've known for years, and we have worked with several clients jointly, and his expertise is addiction. Steve, welcome. Thanks, John. I really appreciate that. To, to see a, a friend and a colleague like you has just been amazing. I've known you since I moved to California. So, you know, I'm so happy to be here, so happy to work with you, and always appreciated consulting with you all these years. Yeah, thank you. And I mean, I, I was talking to someone about this in terms of referrals, and I don't refer to people that I don't know or don't trust, which means it's a pretty limited group of people that I refer to. And I love the people that I do refer to because I can refer to them with such confidence. Great. Thank you. I appreciate the confidence in me. Yeah. And so you're one of that circle. So thank you for, for being there. Um, so do me a favor. Tell me a little bit of your background, how you came to be in this field of addiction. Absolutely. Uh, thanks. Yeah, I uh, started out um, in psychology. I was starting to take psychology classes back in Wisconsin at a, uh, a small uh, extension campus of the University of Wisconsin and got so interested in behavioral science. Uh, this is back in the early 80s. And uh, then um, transferred to the University of Wisconsin-Madison, which I started taking psychology and social work classes and, and kind of like found out that I really wanted to work with people. I was so much more interested in people than things. Um, and then started to think about where I wanted to work. So I thought um, I'd work in the school systems. So I began a, um, a, a placement at uh, uh, a alternative high school. Uh, called Malcolm Shabazz High School, which is high school in Madison, where all the kids that got thrown out of public school went into uh, into uh, um, this alternative school in Madison. Well, just about every one of the kids I worked with, John, had addictions. So I thought yeah. I better start really learning a lot about addictions, and uh, was so fascinated by um, uh, substance use disorders and uh, how they manifested. I just had dedicated my whole career to it, and so after I worked with uh, this alternative high school, I started working. My second uh, internship was at the Dean of Students Office at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. So I started to work with all college kids who were having difficulty on campus because of alcohol and drugs. They got kicked out of the dorms. They got into fights. Uh, and I think at that point, I was hooked. Uh, I um, reflect upon my own family and found out that, that many of my family members had uh, struggled with addiction, whether it be nicotine addiction, uh, um, alcohol addiction. It was uh, very 
prominent in in the state of Wisconsin. It's it's a lot of bars and churches, so mm-hmm. uh, the whole social life is connected through through uh, through drinking and smoking. So uh, uh, I had plenty of uh, family members to 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 uh, start thinking about how they became addicted, and then and then my patients, uh, usually they were young guys, uh, kind of gave me a, a good start in in uh, the work with uh, substance use disorders. Yeah, thank you for that. It it makes me think of booze in Christ, booze in Christ. Everything <laughs> seems to come back to booze in Christ. Um, <laughs> maybe at least in Wisconsin. Yeah, it's so, definitely in Wisconsin. Let Let's go over um, some of the different types of addictions because I think when most people hear addictions, you think drugs and alcohol, but there's right. a bunch of different addictions. If you think of you know dopamine and serotonin hits, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, you can generalize it to. Um, all sorts of different, uh, not only addictive substances, but addictive behaviors. So initially, uh, as I mentioned, I started working with alcohol addiction, but quickly I learned that most of my patients who, who used alcohol also use cannabis, um, cocaine, Valium, all sorts of different um, dopaminergic drugs where they were getting a, uh, a, a, a through their nucleus accumbens in their brain, the reward pathway, uh, a, a very powerful uh, um, dopaminergic hit. So and um, at that point, I had thought much about other behaviors, but some of my patients also had issues with um, what later was called process addictions. So some of my patients use alcohol, also gambled, or also mm. were compulsive around sex. So I, I, although that was not my initial area of, of, of study, I started to really think more about how it affected all areas of our behavior. And, and it's roughly about 10% of the people have, have some type of addictive disorder uh, and that it does include um, process addictions. And then most recently, uh, because I do work with a lot of young guys, it's a lot of addiction to uh, gaming, right? So a lot mm-hmm. of my patients have a gaming addictions. They're not able to really develop social skills because they're on games, you know, six to 10 hours a day. So what's the, just to titillate, you know, the listener, what's the weirdest addiction you've heard of or run into? Um, I have run into people who have um, uh, addiction to different fetishes, right? So, so um, like um, addictions to uh, um, certain types of pornography that's quite, you know, I- intense, right? So, <laughs> quite um, dark. One, one particular uh, guy I've been working with, um, he is into um, viewing porn related to trans, right? And so that's something I really started asking about until recently. And he, and, you know, um, as I'm starting to look at his pattern, um, his uh, uh, porn addiction is kind of like ramped up to looking at uh, images of, of, of trans folks and he's, mm. you know, masturbating to that. So, so that's a, that's something I'm hearing more and more about uh, in regards to addictions. Yeah. The weirdest one I ever heard of, it was actually in Dopamine Nation where she talks about a guy that was an engineer who fashioned a machine that he would, it was an electrical stimulation or shock machine that he would wire to his genitals. And he started doing it himself solo yeah. and got turned on by that. And then he figured out a way to allow people on the internet to do it for him. <laughs> and he had a really difficult time getting away from that dopamine hit. And I thought yeah. that was fascinating. Yeah, I've read that book too, uh, Dopamine Nation, uh, and I remember that story. That is definitely a strange one. Um, so uh, many things can be um, uh, uh, elicit that 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 uh, reinforcement, right? So people get reinforced um, over time, and it's a conditioned response, uh, and they start predicting that this is something that's going to give them that 
that hit, right? And so, uh, whether it be driving fast uh, or uh, or gambling in a casino, uh, all these things are are subject to compulsive uh, behaviors. So, what to what extent do you think thoughts and emotions can be addictive? And in other words, like I, I can see people like depressed people that get addicted to their own self-pitying thoughts or negative view of the world, or we get really attached to that, which is comfortable, like mm-hmm. self-pity or feeling depressed or, or, or misery, or right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, 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 I do hear that. I do think that there's a, a strong relationship there. Uh, you know, I have um, several patients who are very, uh, very depressed or very anxious, and that's part of what gives them a uh, a meaning and purpose, right? It's like sense of identity. Yeah, yeah. They're they're really attached to uh, um, those types of experiences, and it's hard for them to see because of their worldview, because of their narrative, uh, anything but that experience. So, oh, speaking of worldviews, I got to throw this in. This just excited me this morning. So, as I've been researching more in spirituality and psychedelics, I've gotten more into this idea of animism, right? That all things are embodied with sentience or spirit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I can totally get behind that with trees and plants and animals. I, I had a little bit of a hard time with, you know, rocks and metal and, you know, my AirPods or, you know, that kind of thing. And then today they released a scientific study that showed that metal can heal itself. That's fascinating. I had they, they stretched it 200 times a second and mm-hmm. it was platinum and it was in a vacuum. And then they looked at it under electron microscope and at a nanoparticle level, they would the metal actually knit itself back together. Mm-hmm. Now, how do you explain that? Like, I can't, that's so far out of yeah, my yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway, um, well, that was and, a little and, tangent. And, well, man, I, and I appreciate that because um, you know the more uh, the more we kind of like understand and are humble, the more we can be open to yeah. uh, looking at things deeper. I, I, I you know each time I, I I read a new book on addiction or talk to a new client or 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 work with a new program, I learn a little bit more about it. And yeah. you know, it's kind of like there's so many things we don't know. That's well, why one think- of the one of the things that I've you know seen with psychedelics is you know, one of the ways they, tr- they measure progress or the impact of a journey is with the, I think it's the mystical, mystical questionnaire. I forget the exact name, but it's basically during this experience, to what extent did you have these mystical experiences? Mm-hmm. And the higher they score on that, the better off the outcome for that individual. And it makes me think that one of the huge benefits of animism for me personally is I go through the world with this hugely increased sense of wonder, awe, mm-hmm. connection, mm-hmm. and almost magic. Mm-hmm. That's a really good, like, I like living in that world. Yeah, it's, it's really a way to embrace open-mindedness, you know, yeah. and uh, I've been recently studying this, this particular therapy for over-controlled coping, and, and, and it's called radically open dialectical behavioral therapy. It's for over-controlled coping. So the idea is um, to be, become open to uh, things that we don't know open to disconfirming feedback and yeah. really get out of fixed and fatalistic mind and, and into flexible mind. So I love the idea of animus because it's like, what are the things we don't understand as opposed to just kind of assuming that I know all about addiction because I've been studying it for 37 yeah. years to be really open to that. All these different questions we have no idea. And and I've seen the field of addiction change so much because uh, we have been more open-minded. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and I think, you know, one of the things that I see as a hallmark of most mental illnesses is rigid thinking. 
Mm-hmm. You know, the the lack of flexible thinking, the lack of open-mindedness. And I think that's one of the, re- one of the big benefits of psychedelics is that they do get, they do away with that lack of control or that sense of control. So your control, then you have that fear of loss of control. So that kind of dissipates or gets blown up. And then you also, it also by definition, um, I don't want to say destroys, but does away with rigid thinking Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because of the cross communication in the brain. It really opens uh, our, our our thought process up, and as you know, you and I were consulting about a case a couple of weeks ago, and and you know, I think I recalled the the patient who uh, had been in therapy for for many months, and and uh, said he was going to try psychedelics, and I said, okay, well, tell me more about it because I was being open minded, and he he you know we lost contact for a couple months. He tried it, and he felt like it really opened up uh, a new realm for him. And so, you know, I'm trying to be open-minded about that particular approach. You know, I've, yeah. I've uh, worked with a lot of patients who use psychedelics in an abusive way, but mm-hmm. but I, I'm I'm um, uh, open to looking at it in a therapeutic way. So that's good, and that's one of the conversations you and I had the other day. It's like, yeah. how can we use all tools, not not be limited? Well, and, and I think to that point, I think there's a difference between using psychedelics recreationally versus using them therapeutically. And, and the big difference to me is, you know, the pre and post sessions. So you have these sessions before the journey where you're prepped for what's going to happen, how to deal with a quote, bad trip, you know, all these different ideas. Mm-hmm. You have the journey. And then after the journey, you have integration mm-hmm. sessions to help solidify the gains you've made during the journey. And, and I think, you know, one of the things the research is showing is, the therapy element of psychedelic psychotherapy is massive and can't be understated in that process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So let's let's go back to addiction. And what are some of the major? What are some of the addictions that you deal with most typically? Yeah, I would say that that kind of a typical patient would be um, a younger uh, guy. You know, maybe eighteen to twenty four. Uh, who was sent um, because of his parents, or sent because of the the legal uh, the legal system, or sent because of his school, and and so they often come in um, uh, not very willing, not very open, not very motivated, and so this particular therapy I do called motivational interviewing takes a look at where is their level of motivation, where is their where are they at in terms of it, so they, they really don't see the substance or the behavior as a problem, they see it as a solution, right? So, so although it's causing some consequences, consequences in their life, they look at it as, Hey, I can, I can, I can manage this. And so, um, part of the therapeutic process is to, is to explore that. So the person who's coming in drinking, uh, using, uh, cannabis, uh, using opiates or, or other drugs like benzodiazepines, you know, stimulants, you know, is there saying, Hey, this, this is working for me really well, but, you know, they're not necessarily seeing that there's consequences related to it. So part of the, the idea of therapy is to, is to explore this together. We, we interview it. We both look at it together and it's like based on a therapeutic relationship. So when a person comes in, first step is to really gain their trust, establish rapport. And so that we, then we can talk about anything, right? Um, and, and oftentimes it leads way past talking about a drug uh, or a behavior. It leads into what we were saying before, which is what's really going on with the person inside, their emotions, their thoughts, uh, their self-concept, all those things are relevant in, in our sessions. And many of them have a comorbid 
mental health condition, like a post-traumatic stress disorder, like a, some type of anxiety disorder or depression or, or bipolar. So all those things have to be like factored in as I'm doing my initial um, assessment. Yeah. And thank you so much for doing that work. Cause I've like, I've done anger management with adolescent males and you know, they're like, I'm coming in once I'm not listening to anything he has to say. And then I'm out of there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I used to be like, Oh, okay. Send them in and I'll see if I can, you know, convince them that I'm interesting or, you know, that there's something of worth here to, to be gleaned. Right. And it's, it's tough work. And, you know, so how do you convince someone what do you do when someone like I, weed comes to mind with adolescent males, right? Like I'm smoking daily. Um, my grades have kind of tanked. My motivation's down. Um, I'm not really interacting with anyone besides weed smokers. How do you convince them that change might be a nice possibility? Yeah, I, I, I think really it's, it's getting to know the person, getting to know their valued goals, getting to know how um, the, the, the drug use, for example, with cannabis is affecting their valued goals. So, um, and then you're trying to elicit what's called change talk. So there's change talk, which is, hey, this is more of a problem than I thought. And there's sustained talk, which is, hey, this is working for me really well. So you're exploring that with the client, right? You're, 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 you know, through the therapeutic relationship, you're, you're looking at how is this really affecting them? And usually they come in and they're like, I have no problem. Mm-hmm. And within five or five or 10 sessions, they're like, this is more of a problem than I thought. Well, they may not change for four years, but mm-hmm. you're planting some seeds of what's called discrepancy, right? So this discrepancy between what I am doing and what I want to happen. So you're, 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 you're building discrepancy, it's called. Uh, and you do that through open, asking open questions and, and doing lots and lots of support, right? They, they, uh, people coming in often feel kind of like ashamed about themselves. Uh, I work, was working with a college kid yesterday and, and, uh, got kicked out of the dorms for selling, can, uh, for selling cocaine. And, uh, um, he felt horrible about himself, right? So you have to look at the emotional part of it. Many of these people are, are hurting inside. So you're looking at the, the, the deeper emotional experience. Yeah. One of the things I used to get from adolescent males who are smoking a lot of weed was I would ask them what their goals are. Yeah. And the commonplace answer was, I want to be a rapper or I want to be a uh, social media influencer. Yes. So the weed was actually helpful to their goal. It just wasn't helpful in moving towards those goals. Right. 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 Yeah. It, it would kind of fit the persona of those, yeah. of those two, of those two, uh, uh, you know, senses of self. Right. So, um, and 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 John, you know, quite honestly, m- m- many people, especially younger people, they're not going to change. So it's kind of unrealistic to think um, that when you send a person to treatment, they're going to change right away. So it's it's not a change event; it's a change process. So you're yeah. you're part of the change process, and there might be five therapists in that process. And and uh, you know, it's okay. You're planting the seeds. You're establishing that that help seeking is a positive thing, right? So you're 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 not trying to punish help seeking, you're trying to reinforce it. It's like, mm-hmm. Hey, you know, uh, it's great to see what's been going on in your life. You know, um, I let them bring up the substance use. I usually don't start with that. You know, uh, I'll say, yeah, I'm a, you know, I'm Steve, I'm here to like, I want to learn more about you. Right. So I come at it from more of a humanist, humanistic point of view, as opposed to like, hey, I'm drug counselor trying to take something away from you. Are you familiar with that? I, I can't find it. I was just looking for it on my computer, but that it's a poem about the stages of change and the hole in the sidewalk. 
Yeah, I, I know which um, poem you're talking about. I can't necessarily quote it, but, but uh, you know, the whole concept of that is, you know, I keep, you know, walking down the street and falling in this hole. Well, eventually I'm able to look at the hole and avoid it. And, and that can take, you know, months and years uh, for that to happen. Yeah. Yeah. But, and then eventually, I think the last one is then I walk down a different street. Then I walk down a different street, right? Not only do I avoid it, but I walk down a completely different street, yeah. which is metaphorical, right? So yeah. we have choices. And sometimes we don't really see that we have choices. People are kind of locked in. This is the only way to do it. That's like fixed mind. So one of the questions I get, which I want to hear your response to is, uh, let's say I've got a family member that is drinking too much. How can I get my wife, son, daughter, father to come in and see you and stop drinking? Yeah, um, there is a process known as a, um, uh, it's called CRAFT, the Community Reinforcement and Family Training Models, the CRAFT model. There's quite a bit of data around that that was a pretty effective approach. So, um, you know, I think the initial step is to talk with that individual when they're not drinking or using, right? So you want to pick out a time of day where they're not high or drunk. And really, as opposed to a punishment, it's like I'm sharing concerns. So um, a lot of uh, treatment, especially early in my career, was kind of like based on the punishment model mm -hmm. that was very ineffective. So the community reinforcement and family training model is really all about trying to look at the, the benefits of change, right? And getting a person kind of interested in it. Punishment model doesn't work. Locking people up doesn't work. So but positive reinforcement seems to work pretty well. So um, uh, there is a, um, a treatment center in New York City called the the um, uh, the Center for uh, Motivation and Change, right? So it's it's they, they wrote this book. Uh, uh, it's called Beyond Addiction, and, and it really talks about this community reinforcement model. So you're trying to help your family member take a look at this, but not in a punishing way, but but in a way that's going to help them them look at um, the concerns that they have. You know, one of the change talk um, behaviors I was saying before is what I'm doing is really affecting my significant other, right? And the person doesn't necessarily see that at the beginning, but as, as the 10 members share this, it kind of raises the awareness that this is more of a problem than they, than they thought. Yeah, I think that's a great question. You know, how much is it affecting the relationships around you? And then the other ones I like are how much is it, how much time do you spend thinking about your next drink, your next fix, your next right. hit? Right. How much time do you spend pursuing that? Yep. Yeah, and, and that's when I see that's pretty prominent where people that are addicted, the thought of their substance of choice dominates their internal world. It's all they think about, you know, and, and, and I see that um, I mentioned I'm from Wisconsin. Well, when I was growing up, there was probably 50 percent of the people smoked. Right. And, and, and you saw each behavior, uh, each thought was was trying to facilitate the next time they could go have a smoke break whether it be driving in the car, talking on the phone. So it does, um, it does take a lot of RAM, right? In, in, yeah. in the brain, you know, this is what I'm trying to do. Um, and I look at family members and, and they're kind of living to, to smoke cigarettes. And, and, and that is one of the hallmarks of addiction. That's not a moral issue. It's, it's more of a brain chemistry issue, a brain mm -hmm. you know, structure issue. So we've kind of gone from looking at addiction kind of in a moralistic way to looking at more in terms of scientific, uh, uh, like a brain disease. To what extent do you look at it as, and I know this is oversimplifying, but to what extent do you look at addiction as the mindless use of a substance? So in other words, you're not being mindful at all. You're yeah. just automatically and habitually reaching for that drink at five o'clock. 
yeah, it's, out it, thinking. It's classic conditioning, right? You know, yeah. I, I'm not even thinking about it. It's automatic behavior. I'm not taking a step back saying, um, this is harming me, right? So they've been doing it for their whole life. And it does take some type of consequence or difficulty before a person goes from, you know, you're talking about the change process, right? The change stages of change before a person uh, goes from like pre-contemplative to, to action, you know, they have to have a number of different experiences where they they start to say, I, I, I can't keep doing what I'm doing, right? This is not working for me. And I see this uh, um, every day, right? And, and my job is to like pay, pay attention to it and get them out of that automatic thinking. What are your thoughts on habit substitution? I've heard varying things. Habit substitution, like I just read this morning, that if you bite your nails or chew your fingers, one of the things you can substitute for that is rubbing two fingers together. Or yeah, if you're smoking, or sorry, if you're drinking beer, if you're addicted to beer, you can swap out, you know, non-alcoholic beer for the beer. It, it, it's definitely, John, one of our one of our strategies, right? Is you want to substitute a, a more negative behavior for a more positive behavior, right? Mm-hmm. So, so you can do it like you're saying, you know, kind of alcoholic beer to non-alcoholic beer. That's definitely is is a helpful strategy. Um, most people are not going to go from you know drinking uh, a twelve pack a day to not drinking, right? There's mm-hmm. a process of that. So choosing a less harmful behavior is is a good one. And what I try to do is try to figure out and sort through um, what is a positive behavior, right? So, so there's a less harmful behavior, but there's also like what's a what's a more positive behavior. So, for example, people who are uh, this is why our mindfulness uh, uh, strategies work really well. It's like mm-hmm. okay, I'm doing something that's har- harming me, like a like a, a, a um, substance use disorder. Well, now I have the ability to mindfully. Uh, look inside myself, right? You know, take to work with relaxing my body, right? We call it a sober breathing space where a person's able to reflect upon what's going on, breathe into it, um, and, and look at expanding their, their choices, right? So, so, you know, we're trying to, to change out the negative behaviors for the po- hopefully positive behaviors. Can you give me some examples of that? Yeah. Um, a, uh, a guy I'm working with, I think I mentioned him a couple minutes ago, um, the college student who got kicked out of, of, his, of his dorm for selling coke, um, what we're trying to help him with um, is um, starting a mindfulness program, starting a yoga program, you know, starting a program where he, uh, on a regular basis, is with peers, right? So the social, social isolation and uh, substance use is a pretty big problem, right? So mm-hmm. how can I, how can I connect with other more positive people? Okay, great. And what are your thoughts on drug substitution? Where let's say I'm drinking and I'm going to stop drinking and then I start smoking weed. Yeah. And that's a common, um, I think, uh, uh, um, that's a very common thing, right? So it's a, it's a, we call it a cross addiction, right? A person can, uh, um, it's, it's not really recovery, right? It's just, it's just um, substituting the, the, the problem. So um, that's, it happens every day, right? So a person might say, I'm not going to be drinking whiskey, I'll drink beer, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not going to drink beer, I'll smoke weed. Um, I'll, uh, you know, so they're trying to change to a less harmful behavior. So one of the, the, the newer models in probably the last 25 years is called harm reduction. So um, a person, for example, you know, we have an opiate, a big opiate a crisis, lots of overdoses, you know, that's a very bad thing. So people will, will, for their pain, whether it be psychological or physical, stop 
using opiates, which can cause, um, you know, overdoses and deaths to using cannabis. Well, you know, you could definitely argue that's a, that's a, 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 a less harmful way because they're not going to be risking uh, overdose. So all those are approaches that, that we can, we can use. Harm reduction is an approach, you know, uh, abstinence-based approaches are, are good too. Regular psychotherapy, you know, all those are things that I think we, we need to utilize because we're, we're not having the outcomes that we need to have in addiction treatment. And when I think of drug substitution, I'm often looking at, because I think emotion drives almost all of our behavior. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's intimately connected with addiction. And there, there's other aspects in there too, brain chemistry habit. But I'm always asking people like, what emotion precedes your mm-hmm. urge to pick up cigarette? Right, right, right. Like, I, I'm just trying to create more mindfulness there around yeah. that. What, do you, what are some of the factors that you see predispose people to different addictions? Yeah, I would Besides say genetics. Yeah, yeah, genetics is a big factor accounting for yeah. maybe 60% of the variability. But, um, uh, you know, emotional deregulation, I, I, I think that's a factor. So a person can p- be feeling anxious and they, through, through like early exposure, find out that if I'm anxious, you know, I can take a drink and that makes it go away, it numbs it off. So I avoid the anxiety with a, with a drug. Well, you know, when you go back and do a, uh, um, a chain analysis, you find out that the real emotion is that I'm anxious. Well, there's many ways of handling anxiety. So we take a look at that. Is it social anxiety? Is it anxiety related to making a mistake, like over-control coping? Is, you know, kind of like what's driving it? And, and then we uh, help um, clarify that, explore that, and then give the client some other options to deal with those feelings. Would it be anxiety? or depression or trauma flashbacks many of the patients i have if not all have some type of traumatic Hmm. uh, experience whether it be a parent's you know uh, a parent conflict or or maybe they were bullied in school so we're trying to like help them take a look at that and give them different ways of managing it and and i really like you know because you said you know kind of numbing that emotion which i think is exactly what we're trying to do with most addictions. And I love Brene Brown's line that we can't selectively numb emotions. So you can't just numb the bad, negative, uncomfortable emotions that you don't like. If you do that, you're also numbing all the positive emotions. Mm-hmm. And, and that creates this vicious cycle where life is painful. Yeah, you're, 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 living, you're, you're living being numb and, and mm-hmm. you're right. You know, I, I might, you know, slightly numb my anxiety but also i'm going to numb my sense of joy my sense of wonder which you referred to you know as you're looking at the world right you know if you're high or if you're drunk you're not experiencing all the amazing things out there a person's smile a sunrise a flower you know we we don't want to numb those you know really positive experiences yeah and i think you know one of the things i've thought a lot about is i really think we had life figured out better when we were about the age of four, five, six, because a lot of these pleasures, like sensory pleasures that you go back to that bring us joy, happiness, curiosity, wonder, awe, whatever it is, are all, they're largely, they're natural, they're, they're relational. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, like you said, a sunset, watching the waves, uh, looking at Half Dome in Yosemite, Mm -hmm. uh, looking at the stars at night, Mm -hmm. wondering about trees and, you know, how do they communicate? Like, how do they... how do they heal? Like those kind of things bring joy. Learning, learning something new gives us a, a dopamine or serotonin hit. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, playing and, a game. I mean, yeah. and, and I think, you know, it, you know, sometimes in treatment, it's really not about the psychotherapy. It's about learning to have fun and learning to laugh, right? And, and yeah. uh, you know, just, uh, um, uh, you know, I've known a lot of treatment centers who just, what they do best is just getting people out there to experience life, right? You know, an outdoor experience, whereas, you know, uh, many times people are using indoors because they're trying to be in a controlled environment. So I love the idea of a, of a four or five-year-old who is looking at the world with such joy and wonder and, and, and just experiencing all there is to all there is to offer. Yeah. And it really makes me think that, you know, I, I think when I was 12, let's say, I was pretty convinced that I was the only male that felt things deeply mm-hmm. and come to find out, you know, 95% of the men that I've worked with over 20, 30 years are exactly the same way. We're all just putting the mask on to kind of hide that. And, and it makes me think that the vast majority of the vast majority of us feel things deeply mm-hmm. and it's painful at times. And so we're looking for ways to mask that. And, and I think you're absolutely right that, you know, one of the, Parts of the solution is learning how to turn down the volume or manage or sit with uncomfortable emotions. And then the other side of the equation is how can I become more aware of the positive emotions? How can I put conditions into my life where I can cultivate them more frequently? How, because I, I really think that most people don't even recognize or aren't even aware of a positive emotion when it hits them in the face because positive emotions are fleeting, fragile, quiet. They whisper to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other kind of addendum to this is there was research that came out a few years ago that showed that to your point of laughing and smiling, our sense of humor jumps off a cliff around the age of 23. Uh-huh. Well, what happens at 23, but we go into the workforce mm-hmm. and then we got to be, you know, serious adults <laughs> and then we don't ever smile. Right. right and then life yeah, begins to yeah. suck more. <laughs> You know, it's, yeah. and so I'm, I'm often telling the men I work with, like, look, just be quick and easy to laugh and smile. Yeah. 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 Relax. Don't take yourself so seriously. Right. It's just life. It's yeah. a fucking game. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Treat yeah, it as cult- a game. Cultivate play. Cultivate. Yeah. Enjoyment, right. You know, one of the things that, that, that I do, because um, self-care for a therapist is super important, mm-hmm. is I go on a hike every weekend, right? You know, it's like, I'm going to get out there. And just enjoy the outdoors. And it's for me, it's like, it's playful. You know, so I'm yeah. noticing the birds. I'm noticing, you know, the, the, the trail, you know, I'm feeling the, my heartbeat, you know, uh, and experience that. And, and I, be, I get a chance for an hour and a half every Saturday to kind of like experience play, right? And, and then I come back and my mood is great and I, I'm ready for the rest of my weekend. But I needed to do that, you know, because it, uh, we've kind of, you're right, we've kind of lost that ability to, to just have fun. Mm-hmm. Well, think about how many grown men would you describe as silly? Or even having the ability to be silly at times. Right. You're right. Yeah. It's 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 all too rare, right? Yeah. To to do that. Um, and you know, I teach a uh, teach a uh, a class every Tuesday in the city on this mentioned this radically open dialectical behavioral therapy uh, for over control coping. Uh, and those those individuals in that group are very serious, right? Because they, mm-hmm. they have what's called maladaptive perfectionism. And so part of the group is to have fun, is to be silly, to do things. Um, where we're, we're we're breaking down our 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 over control coping patterns and just yeah. really to have fun so and laugh at ourselves and I love what you said about we take ourselves way too seriously I, I think that's a, especially I think for professionals like 
you know, um, uh, why are we trying so hard? You know, mm-hmm. and, and I think I've learned how to to um, not put into fifth gear, right? It's like, hey, you know, third gear is fine for today and just enjoy my time with with my, my patients and my colleagues. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, what you mentioned self-care, one of the things I do for self-care is I go see live stand-up comedy as frequently as I can, because not only do I laugh my ass off, which I think is therapeutic and healing and rejuvenating, mm-hmm. but also there's something about the aha when you get a joke that I think is beneficial for our mind or our right. brain, that it's, it's out of the box thinking. Right. And so it's fun to play with words and concepts and ideas. Yeah. And I, I really respect people that can be witty, not sarcastic, mm-hmm. but witty. Right. Yeah. Because it, it requires so much cognitive load. Like mm-hmm. you have to be able to be aware of what's the situation. Mm-hmm. How can I twist the situation to make it absurd or exaggerated or funny in some way? Mm-hmm. Can I say that then? and not offend people around me. Right. And all that has to be done in maybe a third of a second. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how much, how much joy that brings, you know, watching comedy, whether it be yeah. a funny movie or stand up, or, you know, I like funny podcasts and, and I just laugh at them. I was looking mm-hmm. at a Saturday Night Live uh, a podcast this morning with Adam Sandler, you know, and, and I was laughing, right. You know, getting ready and shaving and getting ready for the day. I was like watching this funny podcast with Adam Sandler singing and, and it brought a lot of joy. And, and these, you're right, John, these, these comedians are geniuses. They're, yeah. they're high in trade openness and, and they look at things really differently than, than, than me. And I have a lot of respect and I just, I wish I was wittier. Right. But, yeah. uh, but I am able to get that from, from these, these experiences. But, you know, part of it is it's a practice to be funnier, to be wittier, to be sillier. And like, so now in my life, I'm surrounded by my fiance and three teenage girls. And, you know, I do a lot of dad jokes. I I take a lot of, I make a lot of attempts at jokes. Um, I say attempts because not all of them are funny. And, you know, sometimes you, you make a joke and even immediately after you say, you're like, oh shit, that wasn't funny. That was not funny. And, and I'll tell, I'll tell them, I'll say, look, I'm going to, I'm going to say some jokes that just aren't funny Mm -hmm. and you're going to be, you're going to groan and you're going to give me a rash of shit Uh and realize that I'm going to keep making the attempt because there's nothing more important to me than making all of us smile and laugh. Uh And, and so, you know, to the extent that you can encourage me at times, that's helpful if you want to smile and laugh. Uh Uh Yeah. Yeah, I can see how playful that must be, John. I can just imagine, you know, kind of like the playful nature of of those people whom you love and care about right there and and just, you know, telling jokes, some of them land, some of them don't and 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 then um you know that you you mentioned relational, right? Is we don't want to numb the relational experience of joy and love and yeah. And uh, humor is, is, is definitely one of those things that, that binds us together, you know, just like music and art, you know, and movies, like gives us something to look at, talk about and experience. And uh, I think that's a good thing. And so I can imagine them saying something like, hey, dad, keep your day job. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They, I would just get. <laughs> but, but some of the things were really funny. I remember we were at Disneyland and we were in the Haunted Mansion. And you know how that, that first room, there's a bunch of people in it and then it sinks like an elevator yeah. and the pictures get taller and then it goes all dark. Been, been there. It, it, went, it went all dark and I had a bug up my ass. And so I, I was making this really funny noise at the time. I was like, Ooh. and I said it super loud. 
during, you know, when it's pitch black. And I think everyone thought it was part of the ride and people, it scared people. And, mm-hmm. and we were just giggling our ass off because the girls knew exactly who was doing yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. Dad did this. Yeah. <laughs> just <laughs> stupid just stuff pre- like that. That is precious. That is precious. Right. Yeah. And it's a shared memory. It's a shared experience. Mm-hmm. Well, I was just thinking about, uh, you know, one of our main strategies in, in treatment, it's called go opposite, which is like, mm. if I'm serious, and if I am, am using to numb my feelings, I'm going to go opposite and, and do something that's fun and enjoyable. And, and one of the reasons I, I, I so love working with you is you, you kind of bring this positive psychology approach uh, to, to uh, all your work. And, and um, social work um, kind of uh, in the last 30 years kind of moved from a, a very uh, pathological model to a strength-based model. Mm. And, and so one of the things I, I, I so enjoy, and, and you highlighted that so well, which is, hey, what are your strengths, right? And, and mm-hmm. you mentioned kind of like, how do you work with kids? Well, a lot of it is, is especially initially, hey, what are your strengths? So I had a, a, a kid in here yesterday, you know, he loved cars, he loved music. We had long conversations about, about you know, kind of like, you know, uh, 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 what his goals were and and some of his interests. So, you know, I use a strength-based approach and it, it's, it's, it works so well. It's like, yeah. you know, why would we pathologize when we can build strengths? And, and um, I think that's another reason I don't get burned out is, is that it's like, hey, I get a chance to build some strengths today. Yeah. And, and I love that approach, the strengths-based approach. To what extent do you think, or do you see a theme among your clients where they are over-identifying with the thinker or that rational side or that analytical side of self and cut off from the emotional side or have suppressed that emotional side? Yeah, they're stuffing their feelings, they're avoiding their feelings. They 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 want to not deal with it, especially um uh, the the shame the self conscious emotion shame guilt right and and the thing with addiction embarrassment. is re- yeah. embarrassment yeah so so men do not like to be embarrassed I found oh my gosh that's like the worst thing ever right so it's uh-huh. like you know you want to do that so so we you know I'll, I'll just start using these these words that they're not familiar with you know like hey shame and guilt and embarrassment and initially it's like whoa, I'm not going to go there. I, I, I'm not going to talk to you about that stuff. But as we engage and there's a, there's a trust, we get a chance to really look at those self-conscious emotions and explore them together. Hey, they're not so scary. There's no need to, to push them back. You know? and, and that's where sometimes self-disclosure can be helpful, right? So self-disclosure is, is you know, I was taught initially, you know, just about no self-disclosure, right? Mm-hmm. That's no, how we were all trained. You don't I threw that out the window. I threw that out the window years ago. <laughs> you don't share much about yourself, right? That was kind of like the approach. Yeah. And then kind of it went to um, well, you can share about yourself if it pertains to the client, right? If it pertains to the patient, mm-hmm. which I which I think I definitely buy, and that's what I teach in my ethics class. And then I think we can go a little bit further in that, you know, some of the stories, some of the experiences, you know, especially of self-conscious emotion, models for the the patient that. Hey, you know, we've had experiences that were difficult too, right? Not that the session is about me by no means, but, you know, we get a chance to say, yeah, I remember a time where I was feeling pretty ashamed too, right? And you pick out something that's not, you know, like the most ashamed time you've ever been, but something that the, the client can grasp like, wow, you know, even Steve has felt guilty or, or, or ashamed or have self, self-conscious emotion. And it gives permission for the, for the young man or the a guy in general to be able to, to share more. Yeah, no, I, I, I absolutely agree with what you're saying. And yeah. so just to cover quickly guilt, shame, and embarrassment, if we can, for those people that aren't familiar. Yeah, yeah. So so when I'm feeling guilty, I violated 
something that is a rule or a, or a value, right? So it's like, okay, one of my, my rules is, you know, I keep my driver's license, right? And, and, and so, you know, a person gets a, a drunk driving, their driver's license taken away, they feel tremendous guilt, right? They're like, oh my gosh, I've, I've affected my family, I'm, I'm upset. Um, I have um, not been able to, to you know, uh, adhere to this rule in my in my brain. So I've done something wrong, right? So shame is different in that um, it's not that I've done something wrong, but it's that I am wrong. There's something mm-hmm. fundamentally flawed with me, right? So so early on, um, there was a lot of authors like John Bradshaw that talked about, you know, you know, healing the shame that binds you. Yeah, so a lot book. of our work was taking a look at. What is that 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 cognitive uh, mindset around that you are inadequate, and that you know um, that's common in just about every one of my patients, right? You know that I um, that something is wrong with me fundamentally. So shame is 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 that I that, you know I am wrong, and then embarrassment is you know that that feeling that you know um, I have done something you know that that uh, uh, is kind of like. You know, out of the out of the norm. Maybe it's not something I'm I'm tremendously guilty about, but it's like you know I burped in public, right? It's like oh god, you know uh, I, I I did something that people are paying attention to. So it's a self conscious emotion in a in a in a in a community that people feel you know kind of upset about. And and again that that blushing of the face is is a, is a part of that embarrassment, right? Mm-hmm. And it kind of like notifies us that that, uh, that we're feeling embarrassed. So so that's how I see it. I don't, I don't know if maybe from a um, uh, positive psychologist uh, point of view, you maybe have more to add to that. No, I think you're right on point. I think you know I look at guilt as I am bad. Shame, I sorry, shame is I am bad. Guilt is I did bad. I did something wrong. <clears throat> shame is I'm unworthy of love, belonging, and connection. Mm-hmm. So shame is <clears throat> deadly. Like it's just, it's a, mm-hmm. it's like a queen or a king emotion. It can right. out volume anything else. It, it's right. louder than any other emotion, Yeah, but it's rarely if ever telling us the truth. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's a really deadly emotion mm-hmm. in that regard. And I've, if you would ask me five years ago, if I had ever felt shame, I would have been like, no, I don't really have any shame right now. Mm-hmm. And then I saw it. And it it usually would occur in a disagreement with Jory, my fiance, where, Mm -hmm. you know, I would get flooded after 15, 20 minutes. I try not to say anything in anger. So I'm shutting down. Mm -hmm. And if I would get flooded, I could go sometimes to this place where I would hear the thoughts like, oh, she'd be better off without me, Mm -hmm. or I'm no good at this relationship thing. Mm -hmm. And in hindsight, looking back on that, I was like, oh shit, like that's shame. Yeah, that's yeah. a belief. I'm not worthy of being in this relationship, right, 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 or relationship at all. Yeah, yeah. It's not just this relationship, but it's all relationships. And yeah. and, and 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 you're 100 right that that a lot of the the presupposition is I am unworthy. I'm not mm-hmm. worthy of love. I'm not worthy worthy of taking care of myself. And so you know, a a, a, a big you know kind of um, um, subject for se- sessions is uh, the self-care, right? You know, how can you look at yourself as a worthy person? How can you treat yourself as a worthy person? And and as I'm treating myself better, then I'm I'm more open to getting in better relationships. So, but it it it, it takes a while for us to get there, you know, because yeah. as men can be pretty well guarded related to to feelings of 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 worthlessness. But yeah. you know, that's a lot of treatment. So so kind of in summary, in regards to the substance use, you know, yeah. People are using drugs, using behaviors, absolutely. But but you know we don't talk very much about you know uh, um, drugs and alcohol, 
right? So I'm a drug and alcohol counselor who doesn't talk about drugs and alcohol. It talks really about, about what's going on with you, what's happening mm-hmm. with you. And, and they're already judging themselves pretty harshly and others are judging them. So we got to get at the roots of the problem. You know, we're, yeah. we're not, you know, we, we, we actually tried um, psychoeducation with drugs and alcohol didn't really move the needle, right? Didn't really move um, uh, uh, change. Um, what really moved change was looking at the the underlying personality structure, the 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 um, you know kind of how I felt about myself, and then looking at taking care of yourself and valuing yourself. Way better outcomes when we shifted away from psychoeducation and and into more like interpersonal development skills building you know mm-hmm. feeling identity development you know who who am i really right so that's kind of the approach yeah thank you for that and and i think you know also one of the things that i think helps in this area and maybe it's just happiness in general is having those self transcendent values or goals or mission so mm-hmm. something bigger than self because i think so many of us can right. over focus on ourselves depression mm-hmm. anxiety those are mm-hmm. extremely self referential Mm-hmm. mental illnesses mm-hmm. and you know to the extent that we can get out of our own head and focus on others and serving others yeah. for example i think that's a really good way to go yeah the purpose right i have yeah. a meaning and purpose right so that we, and we haven't really touched on that yet that that when a person has a meaning and purpose outside themselves right mm-hmm. that that is that's so helpful and, and we do get tied up in self-referential pronouns like like me, my, I, right, and and, and that kind of like pumps up the, the ego, and, and and when we're serving others, we're helping others, we, we feel like we're 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 contributing to the benefit of uh, of our community, of our family, of our of our society. That's where uh, I think real uh, uh, positive sense of self comes from, not from you know uh, um, you know look at what I've accomplished, right? Yeah. You know that's that's only you know superficial. There's a lot bigger, lot lot more to do there. Yeah, I think one of the things that my parents drilled into me as a kid is this idea of leave the world a better place, mm-hmm. and it's kind of, it's the same idea, right? It's mm-hmm. support other people, support your community, right. support right. the elderly, yeah. support kids, you know. That's serve right. other people. How can you make this world a less painful, more right. tolerable, happier place? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's voluntary sacrifice for the greater good, right? So I, I, I'm not doing something because I have to. I'm doing something because I want to, and I'm making that sacrifice for my family, you know, yeah. for my, 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 my team, right? My, my team at, at, at these treatment centers I work at. I, I'm like, okay, I'll take your call, right? Because I yeah. want to help you and I want to consult with you. I want to share my 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 thoughts about this patient or situation and I, I by helping others i feel better about myself i thought you were going to say something about my tribe like how do i need to support my tribe and you didn't yeah, go there yeah. but in my mind i was thinking yes and my tribe is humanity yeah like yeah. I, I think we need to expand mm-hmm. our definition of our in-group to humanity Right, right. I think that would help out with a lot of the division we see in the world these days. It, it, it's a much bigger context, right? You know, mm-hmm. kind of like as opposed to my tribe being, you know, my my family or my or Republicans I, or Democrats or all, Californians. All that, yeah, all that divided divided sense, right? We we have way more in common than we have um, as rather than than than, than differences. So it's mm-hmm. like, what are our shared commonalities and and what are our shared goals? How can we help? Um, I do try to do some work, you know, in the community. Uh, there's a, several groups like Kids Against Hunger that I that I try to help with where we pack meals for for other countries. And 
And goodness, that's something that that's that's really positive. And it's looking at the world in general as opposed to just just uh, uh, you know our, our, ourselves. So I, I I do love that idea of purpose and meaning, and I think it yeah. it helps with recovery. It helps with psychological uh, health. Well, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom. I, I really appreciate it. And where can people get a hold of you if they want to find out more about Steve Peterson? Yeah, so I have a uh, a practice in Pleasanton, uh, California. Um, you know, I can uh, share my my uh, phone number. I don't know if, that, if people do that in this situation. So uh, 925-819-6775. So that's my practice number uh, in Pleasanton. I also work at uh, the Camden Center, which is a, a dual diagnosis program in, in San Francisco. Uh, and I teach at Diablo Valley College, uh, and we have an addiction studies program there. I teach uh, courses in group therapy and ethics at Diablo Valley College. So, so those are my my three areas of of uh, those are my three jobs. And uh, you know, mostly it's substance abuse, maybe seventy percent. But I, I I work with uh, people that have other mental health uh, issues too. And I also work with first responders. That's a uh, something I've been doing a long time. I have a number of patients who are uh, police officers and um, firefighters. So I, I really love that work, John. So, um, yeah. And, and I just want to say, I really appreciate, you know, all the work you do in the community. And, and I know that your focus on anger, you know, is, is so great. And I've referred patients to you to work on their emotions, uh, such as anger. And, and I often, uh, I, I often uh, uh, give patients your book, you know, uh, and, and uh, the, the, the book that you wrote um, years ago, uh, patients really benefit from that. So I appreciate you, uh, you know, allowing me to, to give that to patients. Well, I greatly appreciate the work you do um, because I don't want to do it. <laughs> so thank you for the work you do. I, I think it works out well that way. Yeah, we have a great, great reciprocal relationship. Uh, yes. So great. thank you for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. And that is it for this episode of The Evolved Caveman. If you like this episode, please be sure to like, rate, review, and share. And if you didn't like it, you don't have to do a damn thing. Until next time, this is Dr. John. Thank you for listening to The Evolved Caveman Podcast. If you like what you've heard, support us by subscribing, leaving reviews, and sharing the podcast with friends and colleagues. For the latest, most powerful tools to connect with like-minded men, join the Facebook group at The Evolved Caveman. Follow Dr. John on Instagram at The Evolved Caveman, all one word, or join the email list by visiting guidetoself.com. 